Hello and welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions. I'm Michael Yetman and with me today is Andre Steinecke. How's it going, Andre? Good, thanks, Michael. Good to be back on Neurotransmission. I'm very excited. We've got a great show today. Professor Lishin Lu from Stanford is here to talk with us about one of the most fundamental questions in neuroscience, which is what is it that defines us, nature or nurture? Is it genetic programs that form our brains and that make us who we are? Or is it the unique experiences that each individual has throughout life that shape our brain? The way he attempts to figure this out is to look at a wide variety of circuits in the brains of both fruit flies and mice to try and extract some general principles of how these circuits form and function. He looks at the roles of individual genes in the assembly of these networks of cells, as well as how neural activity shapes these circuits throughout life. Exactly. We also talk a lot about how some circuits are very stable and hardwired from development, while others like the visual system are highly flexible later in life. Much of Dr. Liu's work has been done in the olfactory system because it has such a beautiful and unique organization that is very tractable for circuit dissection. Basically, neurons in the nose sense individual smell molecules with individual olfactory receptors. These receptor cells then send axons conveying scent information into the brain to order specific regions called glomeruli. Right, and this wiring needs to be precise and remain stable for evolutionary reasons. Smell is a very ancient sense and is conserved throughout life, but different animals have evolved to care about different smells. Despite these differences, animals need to have a stable representation of these smells throughout their entire life in order to survive and reproduce effectively. Right. Other than these biological questions, he also tries to uh, develop novel techniques for studying these circuits. And we'll hear a lot about these things like Markram techniques, which stands for a mosaic analysis with a repressible cell marker, which allows for expressing or removing specific genes from small subsets of neurons or even individual neurons. And just to clear up some of the jargon that we get into later, some of the other stuff we talk about, like the Cree lock system, is just another method for making cell type specific changes and expressing certain molecules in your experiments in the brain. Cool, let's get started. Today we're joined by a special guest, Dr. Li Chun Luo. Dr. Luo is currently a professor of biology at Stanford University and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. He teaches neurobiology to undergraduate and graduate students and has published a very successful single author neuroscience textbook, Principles of Neurobiology. He's also a member of the National Academy of Sciences and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Welcome. Well, thank you. So you're a developmental biologist by training and now you also um, spread out into um, axon guidance, memory formations, you work in flies and in mice. But let me start with a developmental biology question. So what in general can we learn from uh, studying development in animal models? Yes, of course, the circuits, no matter how complex, it come from a brain, how many, how many neurons, how complex their connections are. They all start 
from fertilized egg, a single cell. Yeah. And then through the elaboration of its genome, its gene expression become more and more sophisticated spatial temporal pattern to generate a nervous system. So one way of looking at development is to, you know, if you want to understand your func- uh, the adult nervous system function, you look at a simpler form and how mm-hmm. they come about. Um, that can ins- instruct you t- uh, to look at a more complex adult nervous system. The other way to look at it is, you know, you can't you can't study a circuit that does not have a developmental mechanism. All circuits are constructed through the gene expression during development to make the adult circuit. Mm-hmm. And a third way, I think, is that a lot of the tools that these days people use to tease apart uh, how the adult circuits are constructed, uh, utilizing genes that play important role in development, in the construction of the circuit, to specifically uh, allow neuroscientists to um, dissect mm-hmm. specific component of, of circuit. So from practical as well as theoretical purposes, um, understanding development is an important part yeah. in neuroscience. So, so when does the development of an organism finally stop? So we, we know that there are, for example, critical periods yeah. and all these kinds of things. And also you learn a lot during development, but yeah. also learning never stops, right? Yes. So what is actually, is there an endpoint of development in general? I say no, okay. because actually aging is part of a developmental process. Mm-hmm. You know, you become more, it's a, instead of progressive, you have a regressive uh, events that happening uh, during your lifespan. But that said, there is a period where the construction of the nervous system is most active. Mm-hmm. And in humans, um, the construction of the nervous system is most active. Actually, the, 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 the set up the broad stroke organization mostly happens during embryonic development. So when the baby is born, in fact, you know, probably the first trimester. And then later on, it's more um, growth. For instance, the, uh, the neurons in our brain, 99% of neurons in our brain, is uh, were born when the child is born. Right? There is some limited uh, neurogenesis, but mostly the neurons are born during development. Don't, you don't have, for the most part, no neurons, no new neurons that are generated. Um, then the, the wiring of the brain, um, mostly the large scaffold also occurs in the embryonic development. Mm-hmm. But still, there is a lot of refinement in postnatal development, in particular in uh, primates and humans. There, the postnatal development, as we know, you know, it, it extend through the first two decades. You know, there is adolescence, which is also a very important developmental period, and part of our cortex, front part of our cortex, the prefrontal cortex. People claim that um, they don't get fully mature until. Um, you are 20. So that's wow. why there is a age for drinking limit. Oh. <laughs> and also the, there is a limit, uh, there is a, you know, driver license. You don't get your driver license when you are 10. 
So this this idea that you said of setting up the scaffold of of the circuitry in the uh, embryonically in the early months of life, uh, this kind of brings up the question of this, I would say, fuzzy line between the role of genes and genetic predeterminism and activity in sculpting circuitry. Could you talk a little bit about the interplay between these two things? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting uh, topic. I think a topic which deserves a lot of further studies. The, essentially, the, the, the force of nature and nurture in setting up our brain function. In fact, my textbook uh, starts in the introduction uh, talk about nature and nurture in brain development and function mm-hmm. and behavior. So the current understanding from neurobiology research is that both it's it's you know it's uh, it's absurd to say nature is more important, nurture is more more important. Both are important, but they play complementary functions. The the nature or the innate genetic program that established the course wiring of the brain, these are selected by evolution because animals need to have certain basic functions like breathing or looking for food if you are, you know, are fruit flies as soon as you are born so that uh, uh, you, you, you need to fulfill the basic skills of, of uh, requirement of, of life, compatible with life. So those that are the fruit flies that know the smell of banana means food and they can go after will have a higher chance to uh, sigh their progeny compared to those that have to learn that banana means food. So essentially, um, the nature is a way for evolution to work on your genome to set up your course uh, wiring or sometimes actually find wiring in very basic circuits. That said, there is a lot of circuits that require postnatal development experience or sometimes spontaneous neuronal activities that are used for you know sharpening the wiring and optimize the circuits. And those are important too. You don't want your brain to be completely hardwired so that it's inflexible because after all, all organisms are going to experience many different life experiences and you want your brain to be uh, flexible and in fact one of the major hallmarks of the nervous system is the ability to learn to change and uh, in terms of the the, the the relative contribution of these two forces I think that differs in you know different organisms may use different amount or different circuits circuits that are important for innate uh, behavior are more uh, constructed by the force of nature, by genetic gene specification, whereas those that are more um, high uh, functions or more uh, scoped by experience are more activity dependent. You said the different circuits underlying different behaviors in the brain might be more or less dependent on this nature or nurture development or plasticity, activity dependence. Do you think that this can be changed in a, in a permanent way by manipulation. So to make a, a more stable, hardwired circuit plastic, and can, can we do this in experimental systems? You mean whether the, the, the ability to be plastic 
is plastic. Yes, like can, people can, have talked about this yeah. meta plasticity. Yeah. Yes, so can can um, we take a mouse and make yeah. it normally hardwired sense of olfaction maybe yeah. hyperplastic or it's hyperplastic sense of something else more hardwired? Yeah, yeah, you can do that um, in principle. For instance, we know you know this um, famous molecule called NMDA receptor. Um, this is a, a molecule which uh, can take two different inputs. And it's a coincidence detector, right? You you know you can use that as a learning molecule. You can and there is a major theory, you know, Hebb's hypothesis that pre-synaptic and post-synaptic neurons are the two partners of a synapse. Uh, when they are coactive, um, the synapse becomes strengthened, and this molecule uh, provides a means to do that. And there is, for instance, one of the subunits in NMDA receptor called NR2B, which is uh, more, sort of make the NMDA receptor more plastic. And uh, they are, tend to be highly expressed in developing neurons. And in adult, they are replaced by this NR2A receptor, which is sort of more, less plastic, let's say. And the people have done experiments of expressing NR2B persistently in adult neurons. And indeed, they find that this make these neurons more plastic. But that also comes at a cost because you don't want your brain to be always plastic. You want, you know, you learn something you want to memorize. You mean you want to stabilize your brain. So there is a fine balance. And uh, I guess we are all evolved to, you know, be suitable for the, the, the balance between nature and nurture us suitable for each individual organisms. But that said, you know, evolution certainly has not explored all our opportunities. So it's possible that you can manipulate, you know, manually change things that make the animal more plastic if you want them to learn more things. But for instance, there is a side effect for that NM people have made a mouse which overexpress an MNDA receptor to be so that the mouse actually learn faster. They have um, faster skills for acquiring spatial memory or for have a stronger so-called long-term potentiation, which is a hippocampus uh, neuronal property that correlate with learning. But these mice also have other side effects. For instance, they are more susceptible to pain. And MD receptor is also important. I mean, you, you want to be smart and uh, more painful, you know, <laughs> Yeah, and it's a, it, it's also very necessary to forget things, right? So yeah. if you if you can't forget things, that is also a severe minus. That's say. right. That's right. So there is, as you said, this balance between plasticity and hardwiring, stability, right? stability. Yes. But these these memories, even even long term memories, are being refined with age, right? So yeah. even my long term memory of my childhood is being refined over time so even these these hard memories that i think i might have are mm -hmm. being plastically remodeled in the brain is yeah. that right yes yes so it's you know you can say learning and a memory is a replay of yeah. development yes developmental mechanisms so in your lab you yeah. study flies and uh, mice. So these two model organisms are not quite similar, 
and they have different aspects that you can study in each of these models. Mm -hmm. So what do you learn specifically from studying, let's say, developmental processes in flies and mice? And can you actually also apply the findings that you have in fly to mouse and eventually to humans? Yeah. So um, these model organisms are selected by, you know, many scientists yes. to uh, take advantage of their um, unique properties. And I work on flies and mice both because I was trained as a geneticist. Mm -hmm. And these two model organisms both offer genetic tools to uh, uh, manipulate genes very easily. In fact, we have also contributed to creating more tools in these organisms. But specifically with regard to the nervous system, there is a, it's useful to actually study the nervous system at different complexity level. For instance, in our human brain, we have a hundred billion neurons. Uh, in the mouse brain, there is a uh, hundred million. So it's one, three orders of magnitude less. Mm -hmm. And in a fly brain, there is 10,000, a hundred thousand, sorry. So it's an, another three, three, uh, three orders of magnitude simpler. So by studying simpler uh, organisms, you have a higher chance to um, um, have a more thorough understanding. Uh, a nervous system of 100,000 neurons is much easier than a nervous system of 100 billion neurons, um, in addition to you know, other genetic tools. And there are also a lot of conservations uh, through evolution. So you asked me whether our studies in fly benefit uh, study in mice. You know, in today's seminar, I just gave you an example that we study a set of molecules that uh, help neurons, neuronal partners to find each other. And it turns out uh, the molecules that we found in flies um, also play very analogous role in a mouse. And I have no doubt that it will play uh, analogous role in a human. But in flies, we can do these genetic screens that in, in mouse, it's so much more harder to do. And in humans, of course, it's impossible that allow us to identify these molecules in the first place. So that said, why you know, not study fly specific only? After all, the complexity of the mouse brain bring us, you know, it, it's much closer to our human. For instance, the neural anatomy on the organization of the nervous system uh, is much more similar in a mouse brain being a mammal compared to, uh, you know, human brain. And a fly is very different. Um, even though the cellular level, they are similar, Molecular level, they are similar, but the circuits and organization, you know, is very different. So in studying neuroscience, in the ultimate, our ultimate goal is to understand our own brain. So that's why, you know, I feel the fly has its advantage. Mouse is closer to human than fly. It has, uh, it's an in intermediate, very important intermediate for us to, you know, look at, um, um, the mechanism. And I should also say that there are mechanisms that are conserved that is very useful mm -hmm. to understand a fundamental construction that, that's unique, that's common from human to mouse to fly. But also there are the differences also as instructive. You know, how, you know, after all, we have all these living organisms 
um, share this planet and they all need to adapt to the same environment. And by studying variability, you know, varieties, you also learn, you know, the diversity of life. You instruct us about how, you know, each individual animals cope with, adapt to the same environment. With that diversity in mind, yeah. part of the reason in my mind flies and mice have been these sort of workhorses of mm -hmm. the neuroscience and genetics community is partly historical. Do you feel that recent advances in the ability of scientists to manipulate the genome would allow for a wider range and diversity of model organisms? And if so, do you have a particular pet model organism that you would like to study the development of circuits in? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yes, certainly the recent um, genome editing, like, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 type of uh, tools allow us to make it easier to venture into new organisms. And... Uh, um, but I must say that it, when developing a new organism, there is a lot of groundwork that you have to establish. So it's very important to choose very carefully what and um, what what you want to do. For instance, re recently uh, people feel that the mouse from mouse to human, there is should also be more primate models um, that sort of bridge the gap between you know ten ten to the third order of complexity in terms of neuronal number. And the brain science. For instance, there is concerted effort of people using this uh, marmoset as a as a model organism. And I have, you know, flies and mice already keep me busy. But there is actually a new postdoctoral fellow who is coming to my lab. He wants to do study um, evolution of the nervous system, and uh, we are actually actively discussing what additional organism we might introduce to the lab. But at this point, we have not decided. Very cool. Um, I'm also very uh, interested in these techniques, in these new techniques that are arising. So mm -hmm. um, nevertheless, a mouse brain is much more complex than a fly brain. We can now figure out very detailed circuits in the mouse. And this also comes from genetic tools. We have the Crelock system. You developed this Markham system for the mosaic analysis with a repressible cell marker. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on what is the, what is the advantage of these new genetic tools that we can now use? to study even complex, very, very complex uh, brains. Yeah, so for these specific tools that uh, we actually develop them for a specific purpose. Mm -hmm. Usually, uh, even though we develop a lot of tools in our lab, we are, we, our purpose is really uh, to solve specific biological questions. Um, but sometimes, actually, you develop a tool, you solve your first question, it turns out that a tool can also be used to study other things that you are, you know, you, you did not anticipate. And, you know, we have been led to study a lot of these things, including some of the talks that I gave today, mm -hmm. like the trap for long-term memory. Yeah. Um, so with regard to tool development, it's always nice because um, 
when you are stuck within a biological problem and you don't know what to do next, uh, sometimes creating a new way of looking at things will allow you to make the first discovery using your new tools. And also it will be, it's very satisfying to see that our, the tools that we developed are also being used by many other mm -hmm. uh, researchers to solve their own favorite questions. So at Max Planck, Florida, we have this emphasis on neural circuits, but a lot of the researchers here study vision. Yeah. Uh, uh, much of your work has been in the olfactory system, either in flies or in mice. Mm -hmm. Why, what attracted you to olfaction and what is special about the sense that made you want to study it? Um, I actually was attracted to olfaction based on its uh, unique circuit organization. Um, so the first paper we published in 2001, uh, a nature paper um, on the wiring of the fly olfactory system, the figure one, in fact, was a figure that I used to teach um, in my lectures in two undergrads. So back then, Linda Buck, Richard Axel identified these olfactory receptor neurons and found that neurons that express the same receptor project their axons to the same glomerulus, very precise wiring. Remarkable, I, ta I taught them. And then they don't know what actually what's receiving the, the, the postsynaptic side of these neurons. When we develop this Markham that allow us to label individual cells, I, I immediately applied to this um, olfactory system to test whether those neurons postsynaptic are instructed by these olfactory receptor neurons or they have their own genetic identity. And it turns out they do have their own genetic identity from this paper. So the figure one, if you look at that paper, that figure was copied, carbon copied from a lecture that I say, we don't know about this. So it's useful to know what is not known. Um, and then having established this, we've, you know, I find that olfactory system is a very uh, unique system. You know, it's useful to study different sensory systems. Vision olfaction comparison is very instructive in terms of how information from different modalities, photon versus chemicals are detected by animals and make, made use of to help them, you know, the ultimate purpose is to help them find food, to avoid dangers and to find mate so that they can propagate their genes. Nice. This, this leads to a little bit of a, another question about olfaction. So is it, is it that all the animals or in the animal kingdom or even us use the olfactory system for the same purpose? Or do you think that actually the same sense might be used differently throughout uh, flies up to mammals, up to humans? I think there is a similarity, major similarities, and mm -hmm. then there are variations. Okay. For instance, uh, I think the olfaction is a more ancient sense compared with vision. Uh, bacteria, you know, needs to chemotax to nutrient or avoid uh, toxins. Um, they need to sense the environment. Um, 
And you know, vision came along also. And they they have phototaxis, but more bacteria has chemotaxis. I mean, all bacteria needs to do that. Um, and uh, so the ancient role of of olfaction, of the sense of chemicals, really comes from finding your environment, find food, you know. And then later on, um, they are also used for you know major a major major uh, use is to find mates, pheromones. Um, but in humans, for instance, we have much more sophisticated vision. And our organ that are detecting, the mammalian organ, that's, you know, vomeral nasal organ that's used for sensing pheromone, which is so important in mice and rats, are almost completely degenerated because we don't use, we don't use odors to find our mates uh, in human anymore. Uh, we use Facebook or <laughs> some other media to yes, find them. Uh, yes, yes. Um, yeah, on the other hand, you know, our vision compared to the mouse and the rats, you know, we have trichromatic vision. Um, our visual system is developed much more sophisticated. We, in, we take most of our information from our visual system. So our advanced vision, you know, um, is uh, compensates more than uh, the loss of uh, the reduction, I should say, of the olfactory system. You know, our odorant receptors, the mouse and the rats have about a thousand. We only have a 300. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us today. It was fascinating. Yeah, thank you thank very you. much. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a great fun to visit the Max Planck Institute. All right. So thanks for listening. And thanks to Dr. Lo for sitting down and talking to us about his work. So Andre, what's your takeaway here? Is it nature and nurture that makes us who we are? I think it's both, of course, but each serves a different purpose. So you need underlying genetic blueprint to shape the basic circuit and then you need experience related neural activity to refine things later for each individual. Thanks to our producers in the Office of Scientific Communication. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NeuroPodcast. Until next time. Bye. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast.